Welcome everyone to episode 10 of the Sports United Podcast. We made it to double digits, 10 episodes already. It's been a wild ride so far. So much has happened in the world of sports and in the world in general, and I'm so glad you're here to share it all with us. We have a jam-packed episode. We have another sports report. We have the whole NASCAR situation, and more leagues are coming back. So we're going to get into the news right away. And we are going to address the whole Bubba Wallace noose situation. Now, this is going to be a straight kind of read report from an ESPN article that came out after the FBI released their findings because so much has happened over the course of just a few days. I want to make sure that I get every single thing right, nothing wrong, because this is such a delicate situation. And because of what has happened, people have begun comments and saying that this is a hoax, that it was all put up. So I don't want to get anything wrong. I hate that. I try and do the most amount of research possible. And this story, I wanted to make sure I got right because it deserves it. So what we do know, a crew member for Bubba Wallace's number 43, went to the garage and saw what appears to be a noose hanging in the garage. Went to NASCAR, the officials, Bubba Wallace never saw it, and he didn't even know about it until Sunday night as the race was delayed until Monday. What came after Monday was a huge rallying cry of support. You saw the images of Bubba Wallace in his car being walked down pit road by not only all the other drivers, but other crew chiefs and crew members and garage members of the different cars. And it's a powerful message for what has been seen as just a trying time in all sports, but also humanity. Not just with the pandemic, but with the Black Lives Matter movement. As Bubba Wallace is the only black driver. So back to this. So the FBI was called in because this is straight up a hate crime. If this is true, if this was created, it's straight up a hate crime. FBI came in very quickly and it was determined that it was not for Wallace uh, and it had been there for a while. So the question becomes then, why was this happening? Why has a noose been there for so long? Then you start to get people who work in garages and all that say it's a garage door tie, which is fair to pull a big garage door down. But me personally, I'm not a huge garage auto mechanic, but I've been in a few garages. I've never seen one like that. Never seen a noose. The FBI did their conclusion. So some of the questions are, was there, was it a noose? Yes, it is a noose. It's tied that way. There are rope pull downs, is what they're calling it, for roller doors in the garages at every bay at Talladega Speedway, which is where the race was this weekend. They have not denied that, although this particular garage had a noose. Why? That is another question. We may never know the answer. Their detailed report says that in garage number four, it has been there potentially since at least October 2019. Again, you have to think, why? Why someone would do that? You know what it looks like. Then you get all the people commenting online that, oh, you only think it looks like that if you're thinking that way. With everything that's going on, 99% knows what's going on, knows the tension, knows what is happening. So to have a noose there, that, I don't get it. So then the next question was, was Wallace's team purposely assigned garage number four? And the answer is no. Obviously, if there's no evidence, then that's what we have to go with. That's 
not up for me to decide. The FBI decided that it was just a random draw and it just so happened that that occurred. But NASCAR is still doing their own investigation, which is the right thing to do. Because we do have those questions like, was it randomly assigned? Why was the noose there in the first place? If all the other garage doors, that was the big question coming out was if that was the only garage that had it. It appears all the garage doors have a garage pull down. Now, why was that the only one that looked like a noose? That's a question that NASCAR needs to figure out. Why was it there for so long? Another question. These are really big questions that are going to have to be answered. Also, NASCAR is not showing a photo of the noose. Now, you can find them online. Uh, we won't be sharing them on our social media, but it's a really easy find. To take a look at it, it has turned into, and the sad part is, oh, it's a hoax or they're just doing it for attention or trying to take down this really big movement and going forward and especially a sport that has not really changed or catered to a lot of its fans and to show the support the walk down the emotion so we're gonna move on to the next news story uh it was reported today that many blue jay players did contract uh covid and staff members from the team. Other players and team staff members for other leagues such as hockey have been testing positive lately and there's been a spike in there. So we're gonna have to see if things calm down, but uh, spring training has been moved from Florida and Arizona to the home baseball cities, except for Toronto as of right now. Just to add to the baseball soap opera that we've all been so enjoying in the spring, Fans, I guess, finally got the news that they were looking for, that we will have a season. It has been voted on after so many back and forth, so many down votes, no's, no agreements. But it has finally been ratified that the agreement that they initially talked about on March 26th, that is what they're going with. So it will be as follows. Training camps will officially begin on July 1st. You have until July 1st to report to your city to for training camp and on july 24th that weekend games will begin they will play 60 games in 66 days the the expansion of the playoffs and dh hitters is not happening because that was not agreed upon they're just getting going it's going to be a rough rocky july i think for baseball and this is they really got to hope that a lot of good exciting plays not a lot of people are infected and people watch. They've lost a lot of fans, a lot of good grace over the negotiations and the back and forth, the bickering. Many, many fans on social media have just been telling them to just play. It's been an ugly, ugly discussion for the past few months in a sport that has seen success in other countries and leagues participating. They were ripe to begin play really really fast as they are a very easy social distance sport just didn't happen and now we get this kind of tumultuous agreement between the MLBPA and the MLB owners but they're starting to play and July is going to be jam-packed with sports to go ahead in the news uh, we have news out of wheelchair basketball and the international paralympic uh, committee the international uh, paralympic committee always looks to make uh, changes in fairness to each of its competing sports and they passed those recommendations down to the federations of those sports to make changes and make sure that everything is fair for those competing athletes as 
every uh, Paralympian has different categories that they fit into in the different sports. So the uh, the change to the wheelchair basketball, and based on that, the International Wheelchair Basketball Federation is being given the direction to reassess uh, eligibility for athletes uh, within a certain range. So each athlete is given numbers uh, based on so based on their performance, their core balance, torso movement, each player gets a number between a 1 and a 4.5. And for fairness, all the five players on the floor when playing, they take all those numbers and when they add them together, they cannot add more than 14. So some players might have a 4.5 or a 4 number. If you have three of those players, say out of 4, you're at 12 already. That means your other two players have to be at a 1 to equal 14. It adds kind of a strategic element, but making it fair for the different athletes in the different chairs. The new eligibility and reassessment that has been passed down has affected some Paralympians already, and one that has been affected is decorated Paralympian David Eng, who was gearing up for his final games this year in Tokyo move to next. Eng has won gold for Team Canada in 2004 and 2012. Uh, he's uh, the flag bearer for the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio. Unfortunately, he is not eligible now to compete in Tokyo next year in 2021. This was going to be the final games at which wheelchair basketball uh, was going to be featured as it has been pulled from the program in 2024 for the Paris Games. Not sure why, have to investigate that. Um, the problem with uh, this classification is uh, these are the athletes who are numbered 4 or 4.5 are, that are being reassessed. And that is why Ng cannot play uh, because he has been reclassified and does not fit the 4.5 classification anymore. In total, 134 players are being reassessed. Now they have said that about 75% of them have been reassessed and very few have been affected, but that's still you know, really sad for a very decorated Canadian Paralympian. It's a shame that his career has been cut short. Uh, we wish uh, David the best. He should keep his head held high as he is uh, a very important Canadian athlete, one to look up to. We wish you the best here and uh, if you ever want to come on the podcast, if you hear this, love to talk to you. Let's make it happen. Now let's try and uh, lighten up the mood here, get some uh, smiles going, as it's now time for some news that will unite us all. The first news story comes out of Germany and our dear friends at Bayern Munich. The Canadian phenom Alfonso Davies has won Rookie of the Year from the Bundesliga. Talked about the Bundesliga before, and he has had a monster year despite the break in between. He has continued to charge forward. He is the future of Canadian soccer on the men's side, and he's a welcome addition, something that we've needed in the soccer community for the men's side. We have plenty of stars to look up to on the women's side. They have been kicking butt for many, many years. And, you know, because of the, that success, we have young stars now to come up to replace the aging veterans uh, to continue the success of the Canadian women's team. This is the start potentially for the men's team to kind of catch up so that they can be on equal and maybe we can have dual World Cup soccer champions. That's a very high pipe dream especially on the men's side. It's not a crazy thought for the women's side. I actually think it's coming very, very soon. Men's side might be a little early, but 
we can get there, especially when we have talent like Alfonso Davies. So congratulations on the Rookie of the Year, and we look forward to the rest of your career. Well, some players have tested positive the past week for the best that uh, they're going to be fine-tuning player safety and no more players are tested positive. First, we have to get players over there. Uh, Leo Komarov, Uncle Leo, and Mikhail Grundlin are organizing a charter Finn Air flight for NHL players who want to get back to North America for the restart of the season. This is a great story, great start, and shows that players in Europe are ready to come back and start training because training camps open very, very soon. Actually, they open July 10th will be when training camps start, and that will be Phase 3 because Phase 4 is when we get going. And the way it's going to work is for Phase 3, teams will be allowed to have 30 skaters and unlimited contracted goalies. So as long as your goalie is under contract, you can have eight if you want. Phase four, when the games actually start, we don't have a date, that's TBD, uh, you will be allowed to carry 28 skaters and unlimited goalies under contract as well. The new NHL Hall of Fame class of 2020 was announced today, and we have some heavy hitters who were announced as Hall of Fame inductees. We have Kim St. Pierre, Ken Holland, Jerome Gilna, Marion Hosa, Kevin Lowe, and Doug Wilson are all now inductees into the Hall of Fame. But we are very excited for those. Marion Hosa, well deserved NHL career, battled through a lot. Same thing with Jerome Gilna and Doug Wilson. Ken Holland, a great builder. Doug Wilson, a strong contender. Kim St. Pierre, a magnificent hockey player. So they all deserve to get in. The big celebration for hockey comes at the end of this month with the NHL Lottery Draft. That's right, it's coming this Friday. Don't forget to tune in. It happens at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Grab a drink, get ready to celebrate, hopefully, if your team is participating, or be really, really nervous like myself. You can uh, take part in the uh, sim draft lotteries i have been doing that non-stop i think i did it for maybe 10 minutes and uh, every single time i would uh, be excited when ottawa would get a top three or just kind of stop when they got both number one and number two picks so i'm gonna be a wreck on friday you can join me on social media i will be essentially either posting my tears or posting my joy for what could be a huge moment for the franchise but uh then again we're going to uh reiterate what happens with the draft lottery so we have these seven teams that did not make the uh, 24 team playoff and play in rounds and then we have eight unknown teams for 15 teams total so those eight unknown teams will be the losers of the play-in rounds, and they are titled Team A to H. In Phase 1, which is happening on Friday, we will have a draw for the first pick, draw for the second, and then draw for the third pick overall. If one of these seven non-playoff team wins the first, second, or third pick, that's what they get. If one of the unknown team wins first, second, or third pick, that will happen in phase two of the lottery, which will happen at a later date. And once those three picks are done, we will have a spectacle revealing the where teams sit in this pick. If all three picks are won by the seven known teams, uh, we don't have a phase two lottery and we just go from there. The phase two draft 
lottery will happen after the play-in rounds are done and we know what teams are there and they will figure it out from there. So it's going to be very, very exciting. And it looks like we might even get an announcement of what hub cities are going to take in NHL teams. We are down to six cities and all three Canadian cities are still in the running, although Vancouver might be in a little bit of trouble. The cities that did not make it to kind of make the cut so far were notified, but it has not been officially announced by the NHL. But it appears all three Canadian cities, so Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto, are moving kind of to the next round, if you will, with LA, Vegas, and Chicago, the three American cities. Those that did not make the cut include Columbus, Dallas, Pittsburgh, and Minnesota, and hopefully by Friday we get to see what cities are there. I want to still say my money's on Edmonton and Vegas with Edmonton making a real push that it will have a Olympic style village mimic with vacations and experiences for families uh, who are there uh, to take part in while everything is happening. So again tune in 8 p.m. Eastern for the draft lottery and hopefully some more announcements. Another sport that has been impacted by everything going on is track and field. For those of you that don't pay attention outside of the Olympic Games for track and field, they have events or meets uh, under the Diamond League, and it's run by the IAAF. Now, without those meets and the Olympics being postponed, track and field has turned uh, to try and do something different. They are doing the Inspiration Games, which will be held uh, in three different cities, uh, one in California, Florida, and Zurich. Uh, they have been put together by Wet Kalas Zurich and will be held on July 9th. You'll be able to watch these all around the world. Different track events, including the 100 meter dash, will be taking place. No fans will be in the stands, which might be a little bit of a different. You can cheer on from home. The NWSL Challenge Cup is beginning this weekend on the 27th, so don't forget the games will be taking place in Utah, and this past week the teams announced their rosters, which include 14 Canadians taking part in the tournament. Some players are opting out of the tournament due to health concerns, and the Orlando Pride team did out as many staff and players were tested positive for COVID. We wish them a full recovery and that they are taking their safety very, very seriously. It must be really hard to pull out of a tournament, but it is the best choice. We wish them the best of luck. We will be watching the games starting. We will recap them next episode to tell you how the tournament has started. Now, we all know people who yell at TVs during sports, telling the players to shoot, do something. We always have someone else in the room look at that person and say, you know they can't hear you, right? Well, that might be a possibility now. Uh, as the NBA looks to return at the end of July, they're working with an app that would allow you to record yourself cheering, making noise, and sending it in through the app and it could be played while the games are going on to mimic crowd noise. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, uh, said during an interview that uh, they are experimenting with different ways to make the experience great and entertaining for both the players and the TV viewers. So that would be a very exciting kind of step up from having your cardboard cutout in the stands or having your Zoom face uh, while you could cheer it on. So it's gonna be very interesting to see if they can get that off the ground. It seems very doable, I believe. 
The Belmont Stakes happened this past weekend and Tis the Law came out on top. Of course, normally Belmont is the third race in the Triple Crown, although we did not have the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness, which have been moved to the fall. So this was the first race in the Triple Crown, the unusual Triple Crown. The Kentucky Derby has been moved to September 5th and Preakness to October 3rd. And we have to see if Tis the Law can create some magic and maintain their win through the summer and into the fall. Uh, it would be very remarkable if Tis the Law can win all three races. It's going to be an exciting Kentucky Derby, I think. All the horses look fantastic. The best news of all, Oscar Lindbaum has been on Scania again. For those of you who don't know, Oscar is a member of the Philadelphia Flyers who six months ago was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, which is a rare blood cancer, and had to sit out the season to receive treatment. His treatment has been going very, very well. He was spotted on the ice with some teammates, is nearing the end of his treatment, which is fantastic, and he's been a really good story for the NHL and the Flyers organization to rally around. A very beloved young player. We hope the very best so that he can continue to grow. And a very fun news story to finish off the news today. The internet has just lost its mind, which happens often, but for a rugby player, that's right, a rugby player. So the Leicester Tigers in the Premier Rugby League uh, have signed a player. You might have heard of him. Even those who don't follow rugby, you've probably heard the player. His name is Harry Potter. That's right, you now all have a team to cheer for in the Premier Rugby League. Uh, he now plays for the Leicester Tigers. They announced it on Twitter today with a pretty clever You're a Tiger, Harry uh, announcement. He's going to be part of the Leicester Tigers. So we wish Harry Potter the very best in uh, his new team. He comes over from the Melbourne Rebels uh, from the Super Rugby side. We will have our rugby expert uh, come on soon to talk about these moves and more. We're now going to turn it over to our sports report. This is our segment where we interview and introduce you to very interesting people in the sporting community. We have a director and producer team of a very exciting documentary called Life in Synchro. This documentary is all about the life and world of synchronized skating. We're going to head it on over to Nicole and Angela. All right, so welcome everyone to the Sports Report. Of course, this is our segment where we interview interesting people in the sporting community. And today I have two very interesting people with us today. We have Nicole and Angela. Thank you for coming on the Sports United podcast. Oh, thanks, thanks for having us. us. Thank you. So I, I just want to start off with uh, thank you on this early Sunday morning for joining us and uh, hope you are both doing safe where you are. Yeah, things are all right. Staying inside as much as possible. Yeah, though I ventured outside a little bit yesterday for the summer solstice, spent the evening outside in a park, but nobody was there, which is nice. So yes, thanks for asking. So uh, we're just going to jump in with some questions. So uh, how did you decide you wanted to make a documentary? Well, you know, that's what I went to, to grad school for. And, and that's where I met Nicole, was at American University. And I, you know, wanted to be a filmmaker. And I was working in video production, doing a lot of freelance stuff. And I was looking to start my first big project. And it was perfect timing, because that's when Nicole's like, come check out this DC Edge exhibition. And I was back in... Um, 2017 and I think I'll let Nicole kind of 
finish filling that out. Yeah, absolutely. So um, brought Angela to the exhibition um, and she was working on putting together, I think you were working on putting together some samples for your new company. Um, so you actually did a little piece on DC Edge from the exhibition, but really the cool part about that was it's the first time Angela had seen synchronized skating in person. So I think the fact that she was able to see it live for the first time really showed her how different synchronized skating is than any other sport. Um, I know a lot of people talk about kind of feeling the wind from the 16 skaters across the ice and it's, you know, a really kind of intense experience when you're there live. So um, Angela then asked me, you know, is there a documentary on this? And there really, really aren't any, at least not feature length. Um, and so that's how our project began. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I like to think that I'm in with the sports community. All my friends come to me with sports questions. But before my wife started to synchronize skate, I had never really heard of the sports, which, you know, I feel a little ashamed because I like to be in the know of almost <laughs> anything. Um, so, Nicole, when did you first learn about synchronized skating? That's a great question. Um, I was very young. Um, probably about seven or eight years old and I was doing learn to skate classes at my local rink and um, every year there's kind of an end of the season show where all the learn to skate skaters do group numbers um, and the you know really talented freestyle skaters do solos and at our club we had a number of synchronized skating teams that also performed so I think that was the first time that I really saw it was in the show um, and it was actually my dad who really took an interest in it and thought it was just this incredible sport that was going to teach me, you know, dedication and determination. Um, and so I tried out for the team and my learn to skate director was actually one of the coaches of the team. So she really encouraged me to try it. Um, the first time I tried out, I actually didn't make it. Um, I was very young and not a very strong skater at the time, but I did try out again the next year. So my first year of skating synchro, it was actually still called precision um, back then, but I was nine years old. Awesome. Cool. So you've, uh, you've had a love for it for a long, long time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, now, Angela, do you skate or have, do you have a background in skating? Absolutely not, um, which is part of the fun of doing this, right? Because I really am and still am an outsider as much as I think I understand it. There's a lot that I don't understand, like especially with the technical bits because I'm not a figure skater. But I also think that's what made me, um, put me in a really good position to make this documentary because I think if you hear synchro, depending on where level you skate, you have a vision of what it looks like and where you think it is. Um, and I think I did a good job of capturing what synchro means to a lot of different people. You know, yes, there's a really competitive side to it that is uh, really important. But, you know, synchro serves other purposes to other people, depending on how old you are or where you are in life. And it could be about community. It could be more about having fun. It could be about teaching you the life skills you need to succeed with the young, young, young people. So. So yeah, it was kind of cool. I'm, I'm really glad though that I found out about it. And I had resisted Nicole for years because she would, we've known each other for a while before we started making the movie. And she always would say, I'm a synchronized skater. I had some sort of national championship. At some point she even said that she won something and I legit did not care, Justin. And I feel so bad 
because, you know, I'm just not a sports person. And I think a lot of people have these preconceived notions of figure skating. And then add to that synchronized figure skating. If you don't know what it is, like you can like write things off. And, and I have, and I'll admit that I kind of wrote it off out of my ignorance. And now that I know better, I feel like I've, you know, got to tell people like, hello, this is a legit sport that deserves a recognition and validation, you know, but that it should get. So. I, I a hundred percent know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to people having this, you know, our minds already made up about, especially figure skating with all that it's gone through and the controversies, but even just, you know, getting people to understand what the sport is, they, when they hear synchronized skating, they might think like synchronized swimming, but even then that's more also a niche in the swimming community and just people just don't get it. But when they see it, I think that's when it changes their mind. Uh, so we've been talking about this documentary. So uh, why don't you kind of give a 30 second kind of synopsis about what life in synchro is? Yeah, so it's about the toughest sport you've never heard of, synchronized skating. And we look at three different, we have three different characters that we follow. Emily Fitzgerald, which is a competitive senior level figure skater for the Crystalettes on their uh, path to a national championship, potentially. We also follow Heidi Coffin from the Maine Down Easters. And that's an open adult, open master's type team and see how their season turns out. And then we follow Peggy McDonald, who was an original Hawkette. She went on to uh, coach the first national champions in the sport, the Frasierettes in 1984. And with her, we kind of dive back into the history to get a sense of where the sport came from by introducing Dr. Richard Porter, the founder. And all these stories kind of tie up neatly, and we meet some other teams along the way, including the Hawkeyes today, uh, this young team, Fraser Eclipse, and um, Infinity Onyx, which is an open adult team. Awesome. <clears throat> that, uh, that sums it up uh, pretty much what I wrote down in my notes, exactly <laughs> word for word. How did you know? Um, so speaking of that, was it, hard or was it easy to get those skaters and teams to participate in the filming i'll let nicole start with this because nicole was the as me a synchro skater was the person who really made all the connections for me at first yeah so i think there are a few components um the first as angela said is kind of connecting with my personal network and reaching out to teams and skaters and coaches that I knew or that were friends of people that I knew. Um, we also sent some contact emails to all of the top competitive senior teams in the US. Um, so we were able to film the teams and the skaters who were really open to us coming and recording them, um, filming them and interviewing them. So we have actually way more footage, way more interviews than we were able to include in the film. So. Um, I wouldn't say it was difficult. I think the, the most difficult car part was actually, you know, piecing the stories together and, and figuring out how the stories weave together without leaving too much out, but without including an overwhelming amount of information. Um, and I think Angela kind of talked about this already, but she really wanted to show the different aspects of the sport and what it means to different groups of people. So having you know, three senior teams wouldn't have made sense or having, you know, three open adult or open master's teams wouldn't make sense. We really wanted a range um, to show skating from a young age all the way 
until an older age. So I think to answer your question, no, it wasn't hard to get people interested. Some people actually came to us, like the, the Maine Down Easters, they contacted us and said, you have to come check us out. You know, we're the only team in Maine. Um, so some people were definitely very open. I think some of the other characters in the film maybe took a little bit of time to kind of open up and, and get used to the camera being around and get used to being interviewed. But I think that's pretty normal. It wasn't, they weren't resisting being in the film. They were more just getting used to the process. Now, too, was it, uh, did you find it hard to shoot in some locations? Uh, like uh, an arena is very, very busy, <laughs> especially depending on the season or time of year. Um, did you find it was hard to get time to, to shoot or, you know, an area in a skating rink where it's just the team and no other distractions or people coming in the shots? No, it was so hard. Um, hard for a lot of different reasons. First of all, we were always on other people's ice time, so we could never control what was going on. So we just, I had to just run with, um, with the action. Um, and, and when there was a few minutes, I'm like, oh, could you guys redo this for me? And that only happened like one or two or two times. Um, yeah, it's loud. Uh, rinks are dark, which are really hard for filming. Uh, and then Add to that, people are moving very fast, so you have to keep things in focus. So, like, technically, from a camera perspective, without getting too technical, you've got to have your aperture wide open to let all the light, but that creates a shallow depth of field. So it's like, how can I keep people in focus and still catch all the action? And, you know, once you know a program, you know where things are happening on the ice, but I didn't know the programs. <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> You know, you think it's going to happen here, and then, oh, no, it happens over there. And, like, it takes just sitting with the team for a while. And, you know, obviously by the end of the season, you kind of know what's going on. But I also wasn't with the teams that much to really memorize the programs. You know, it was, like, once in August, maybe once in December, once in February, and that was it, right? So, um, um, so yeah, so it, it was very difficult. But, you know, you just embrace the challenges, and, and we kind of worked around it. And when we couldn't get stuff in focus or – didn't get it as good as we wanted. We put the camera on the skaters, which is, you know, we have a couple of those shots, and I think those worked really well. I really like those shots, the, the action shots. It kind of gives you a sense of how fast everyone's moving. Yes, and I wish we had done that more in hindsight, but, you know, you live, you learn. Um, because I think that at the, the shots of um, – Emily's wearing the GoPro where they're doing the lift. Like that to me, that's what synchronized skating is. That we will never understand unless we're actually on the ice, right? So that sequence in particular, I think, is the, the most revealing. Now, uh, I'll pose this question to both of you. Was there something that you learned about the sport that you did not know while doing this documentary? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I'll let Angela go first, but I think Angela probably learned a lot since she was really new to the sport. Um, I mean, I definitely learned a lot. I think this is another thing Angela kind of talked about already about how it was, it was almost good for her to be an outsider. Um, because I think it was, it was a little bit easier for her to see the big picture. Whereas I've been in the community for so long and I have a certain idea about what the sport is based on my own experience and and who the important or notable you know figures and coaches are um, so there were certain times where I was like oh no Angela we have to include this person or we have to include this team and and we really didn't because it's not it's not a documentary about every single aspect of the sport you know it's about life in synchro so for me I think I learned to appreciate the sport even more than I had before 
um, because I know that it means a lot to me based on my experience, but I also now have seen the impact that it has on people of all ages, which I think is really important. Um, and then another kind of fun part was really getting to know the subjects in the film, um, getting to know Peggy and Heidi and, and John. Um, and I knew Emily before, but getting to know Emily better. So, you know, it was definitely nice to meet new people in the synchro community. And now, because we're all kind of synchro for life people, you know, I'll still be able to see them at competitions around the rink. So kind of forming those new friendships outside of the little like synchro bubble of my own that I, that I had previously. Well, for me, yes, I learned everything, but what was, I was most surprised to learn. Um, I think, you know, when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, there's something really cool here. You know, obviously it was visually really interesting, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And it took me like a year and a half to really start to understand what I thought was special about synchro and work, stay with me on this argument. Synchro is mostly female dominated, right? And, you know, at first, like, oh, it's so cool. It's just a lot of women. And, you know, for women to see that, it's really cool because we don't see those spaces a lot. And when we do, they have a certain connotation to it. And I'm like, and then I saw, like, wow, it's, like, intergenerational. There's, like, you know, middle-aged women coaching young girls. There's these older women as examples. It's so neat. And then I kind of saw it. And this is what my takeaway is. You know, we always hear, like, dedicated spaces are so important for, like, different communities. And here was a dedicated space for mostly women. And because it's a mostly women environment, it creates kind of like the space for like empowerment. And it's because guys aren't around, and I really am glad that there's men, and I think the future of Synchro is true gender equality with both half men and half women, and I'll get to that in a second. But because there's not a lot of guys there, it really allows a space for like just young girls to like grow up being confident and, and adult women. And, and that's to me what was like, wow, this is like a female empowerment machine and people don't even know it exists. Because, like, when you think about it, Justin, there's nobody there, like, judging. There is no man to do the lifting, right? Women got to do the lifting. And women lift anyway every day of our lives. We just don't, aren't shown doing that, right? And I think Emily says it really succinctly. I am the man in the lift. And so there are no limitations on what we can accomplish when we're doing synchro, which is so opposite what you think, because here's this really feminine presenting sport with the makeup, the dresses. It's, it's, it's like an odd thing that you wouldn't expect. It's like a paradox. You wouldn't expect women dressed this way that we, and again, I don't, this is not my personal opinion, but people see figure skaters as these very frilly ice princess type things, but they're doing something that's so hard and badass and masculine, which to me is perfect. It blows away our gender expectations, right? And, um, and that's what was so cool about it. Now, I will say this, the problem with synchronized skating is that when one person doesn't look like the others, they stand out. And as an, you know, an audience, we're supposed to be taking in the whole and so if there is a man or if there is a person of color when there's not a, the rest of that on the team, it, not that it distracts you, is that that's just where your eye goes. So in my opinion, for Synchro to be truly like, it doesn't matter who or what you are, we need full diversity on a team, right? Imagine half men, half women, or it doesn't even matter, non, you know, non-binary, however you identify with people of all colors and shapes. And then that odd person out stops being an odd person out. Then we can truly appreciate the whole Anyway, that's my vision for Synchro. I'm not even a synchronized skater, but that's where I'd like to see it. I love, I can, I love your vision, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely double down. I've been to, you know, watching my, from my girlfriend to now my wife compete all over different places in Canada. And that's essentially what you hear in the crowd is like, oh, there's a guy. Oh, wow. Oh, no way. 
and you hear like the crowd be like oh look it's and it's like well you're not watching the performance now you're just watching to see what he does or if he falls down or so i i do think that to get to the future of the sport more people have to be open to not only participating but allowing those people to participate and become one not just a single member of a team i do think um from what I've seen in the US, we do actually have quite a number of male skaters on some of the top senior teams, which um, wasn't really true when I was growing up. There, there have been a handful, but I think we are tending to see that a little bit more. So hopefully, even though it's a slow process, you know, hopefully we are kind of moving in that direction. So speaking of standing out, I'm sure uh, you, you definitely got a lot of looks when you were filming in different arenas, um, especially from other parents uh, whose kids probably participate in figure skating or hockey. Um, did you find you getting lots of questions from parents asking what you were doing or asking why are you filming that? Like, what is well, that? Um. Well, first of all, you know, you know, synchro practice times are a lot of times odd times. So early in the morning or late in the day. So I don't think there was always that many people around. I will say like if there were, they usually were synchro parents who already knew what I was doing. Um, but yeah, there was a couple times where like, who are you? What is this for? Synchronized skating? Huh? Like, you know, like almost kind of dismissive if that's what I would be filming. Um, but, you know, then I, I was got really good at giving the spiel on synchronized skating. And, and, you know, every conversation, I believe, is an opportunity to make a fan or at least to to change people's perspective of the sport. So I think, you know, but but I'd say most of the times I was in synchro rich environments. So I didn't have to do that too much. So do you especially for Nicole, do you find uh, more and more people in the figure skating world are coming to know of synchronized skating? Or do you think there's still that? kind of divide people who synchro skate did figure skate or you know know of figure skating but you know it's really a a weird conversion to people in the in the skating world i think that rinks and locations where there are synchro teams other figure skaters know about it because they see them practicing or they you know are on a freestyle or a dance session with a synchronized skater. I think the problem is maybe some of the smaller rinks or in, um, I'd say at least in the U.S., some of the southern states or you know central, middle of the country area where there aren't any synchro teams. That's where there's a really big knowledge gap or awareness gap where people really don't know what it is because they've never seen it or they don't know anyone who's done it. There's no reason that they would know. Um, so I think it's really important. And um, it sounds like there, there's some of this that maybe is coming down the pike, but that U.S. figure skating does a really good job. They need to do more with um, promoting synchro to some of those clubs where they don't already have it. So whether that means an informational video or some kind of poster or giving them the resources they need to start a team, um, even incorporating it into Learn to Skate, um, I don't know if the, I don't know if learn to skate badge books still exist where they they list all the levels um, <laughs> if if they if they still exist and maybe in a digital form now but they do have synchronized skating classes as part of the learn to skate curriculum so hopefully even if people don't have it at their rink they're maybe seeing those pages in the book and wondering about it 
Um, so anyway, I think it comes back to education, making sure that even if the rink doesn't have it, they know where to send skaters and promote it to people who are interested or, or could be interested. I, yeah, I will say here um, in Canada, we call it can skate because, you know, we have to, you know, have a euphemism and, you know, put Canada in everything because we're very proud, but, you know, humbly proud. So um, I do, they do do some things with synchronized skating movements, but I, I will say going to different competitions, um, there are lots of really young teams starting out. So I think it's a, there it's coming the the future is i think bright as long as all these kids stick with it that's the <laughs> that's the problem but uh, i do see more and more parents and younger kids and you know they're all out there with their helmets and kind of step skating to movements and it's really cute and uh, so i do think that it, it's coming of course i can't speak for the united states but how many um teams make it to nationals uh, in the states Ooh, good question. I should know that. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Typically, typically it's about four from each. Um, so four from the East, four from the Midwest, four from the Pacific for all the levels juvenile through uh, masters. Mm. In some situations, it's more if some of the junior or senior team, well, senior, it's not more because there aren't more, but junior, sometimes there are more than 12 because some of the top teams will get a buy from sectionals to nationals. Um, so anyway, I don't know, 100 something? 100 and, oh, I'm going to make up a number, 154. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you find it's, it's kind of, you know, being from Canada, using the hockey analogy, the farther south you go, the less knowledge there is even from the figure skating standpoint i know it gets whenever there's an olympics it gets popular but you know in the middle of the four-year cycle uh, you know figure skating kind of dropped it's one of those sports that drops off from the you know public consciousness for for a lot of people do you find it harder to get teams participating the farther south you go yeah definitely um we actually did a Q&A as part of a film festival with a coach from the Mississippi area, um, Alabama area. And um, they're the only team that exists in that area. And they actually weren't able to field a team this past season because they didn't have enough skaters. Um, so it does exist. They are, they are out there. They are around in the South, but it's just, there aren't as many opportunities. I think some examples of, you know, teams that did exist in the South there was a team in Florida and I think they kind of came into existence in into existence when um, Easterns or nationals or some competition was hosted in that area. Um, but otherwise they don't really have a team or they're not fielding a team. So um, hopefully, as I said, we can get more education and resources to some of these teams and clubs in the South. Um, and I think hosting competitions is actually a great opportunity because it does bring in revenue for the club and then it will help educate people in that area about what the sport is um, and give them a reason to try and feel the team to compete at that competition. So, um, you know, hopefully that's something that U.S. figure skating can encourage as well. I know it's difficult, especially for sectionals. There are very strict requirements about, you know, the rinks because there have to be more than one and how close they need to be together and all that. But um, 
you know, hopefully there are some other places that we haven't been to before that we'll be able to host some competitions in the future and, and field some new teams. Now for, uh, for Angela, what do you think uh, has been, I guess, the reason, kind of like the soccer paradox, why it took so long for uh, synchronized skating to catch on in the United States uh, compared to places like Europe and, I guess, Canada? Um, why do you think it took so long for it to catch on uh, compared to other places? Yeah, you know, I don't know that I have the answer to that. And I think I would maybe defer to Nicole because I really do feel like, like, you know, I've only been in the sport for three years. Um, so I have an answer that I don't know if it's at all based on facts, but I think it's the same reason why no one knows more about the sport, period, is that it's mostly a women-dominated sport. And it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, women's sports don't do as well as male sports. And I think, um, you know, even though we have a lot more equity when it comes to access to sports, there's still you know, just society, societally, the way we view women in sports, right? But, but I'll let Nicole talk about the more specific stuff. That's not just gut feelings. <laughs> well, I mean, I think my answer also is not necessarily based on any statistics, but um, I can kind of base it on anecdotes or things that I've seen or heard. Um, you know, the most amazing competition, international competition I've ever been to, a lot of people have been to, is the French Cup. Um, because the crowds that come and show up at that competition are insane. Um, there are school children that are brought as field trips from class, um, and they're lined up outside waiting to get into the arena, asking for autographs. The energy is just incredible. Um, and that's not something that has happened or that I've seen happen in the U.S. or really anywhere else. Um, so I don't know, Europe and Canada, I think there's maybe more of an emphasis on ice sports in general, you know, places like Finland and Sweden and Canada where hockey is also really big. There are a lot more people probably spending time in an ice rink to begin with. Um, I think the U S also tied into what Angela is saying about it being female dominated. I think a lot of focus in our country is on football and basketball and baseball and the professional men who are playing and hockey, hockey too, but I'd say even less a focus on hockey in the U.S. than somewhere like Canada. So I think it's a combination of where our society kind of puts the focus and the money and the airtime on TV um, versus some other countries and, and the number of rinks and the you know, physical opportunity and access that's available. Um, but again, that's not based on any fact either. That's just kind of my my musings. So I get this question a lot when I talk about or describe synchronized skating to people. Um, Cause when they, they uh, ask me, you know, what we do and what sports we, we play. And my wife is like, Oh, like I'm a skater. And they're like, Oh, figure skating. She's like, actually no synchronized skating. You know, you describe synchronized skating. You always get the question. Why isn't it in the Olympics? Do you, th <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I, Again, it's more politics when it comes to that. I don't see a reason why it's not. But I guess the question is, do you see it being added in the next 10 years? Uh, I mean, I really hope so. I don't know. I don't know how realistic that is. I think we have overcome a lot of 
the obstacles that we need to. We've gotten more competitive. We've reduced the team size down to 16 skaters plus, you know, alternates um, to kind of limit the number of athletes that would need to be housed at an Olympic Village. Um, we've got, you know, we've got ISU on our side advocating for the inclusion. We've got, uh, you know, actually to be considered and turned down. The fact that we were even actually officially formally considered is, is a big deal, a great step. Um, I think that the last kind of component is getting a host city that is really invested in Synchro, that wants Synchro to be there because it's not going to be the IOC that's going to approve Synchro. You know, the Olympics are very set in their ways with their traditions and the number of athletes and the particular disciplines of sports that are included. I think because we're part of the broader sport of figure skating, that gives us a little way in. We're not an entirely new sport with no international federation. Um, advocating for us but uh, I think it's going to come down to a host city that is invested in synchro so hopefully a country host soon that has maybe a really competitive team that could potentially medal at the Olympics and that would be a good incentive for them to want to include it um, or maybe a country that just has you know a really big passion for it so hopefully we'll see it coming um, I don't know if it will be as soon as as people are hoping though well, if I could just just add something here, because I think what's really interesting is how much more competitive can Synchro get without the Olympics? Um, you know, because of the time commitment that these skaters are putting in, you know, they don't have the financial support. You know, is I wonder, is the sport plateauing right now until this next step happens? So for me, I think, you know, obviously you want to get to the Olympics, but for the sake of all the athletes invested in the sport, I want it to happen sooner rather than later. Um, and I think, you know, Emily in our movie, you know, we don't say this outright, but part of the reason she leaves Synchro is that, you know, she's got to become an adult now, right? She, she needs to get a job. She finished school and it's really hard to do that and still be a competitive skater. So, mm -hmm. um, and I, Nicole can speak to this too, because Nicole did, you know, skate senior after college for a year. Um, and actually, Nicole, you can talk about that a little bit because I think people just don't yeah. think about that. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to have a full-time job and be competing at the senior level because number one practice the amount of time required for practicing but number two the travel because you're missing weeks at a time and I know it's difficult for school age people as well to make up that work that that's certainly difficult too um, but um, for me I I worked temp jobs and I was a substitute teacher at a Montessori school so that my schedule was a bit more flexible um, and that worked for me and, and I was able to do that for a year, but my priority was skating. Like I did have to prioritize that over my career. And so that's why, you know, I was doing jobs that I was interested in, but they weren't necessarily things that I was passionate about or that were going to lead to something bigger and better for me in the future and in, in my career. But that was kind of the decision that I had to make in order to commit myself to as much ice time as I needed and all the off ice training and stretching and strengthening and the travel because we had, I think we traveled internationally three times that season, plus our local competitions as well, where sometimes you're missing as much as three days to a week. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's difficult to hold a job down while you're doing that, but it's also difficult to pay 
for skating if you don't have a job. Um, so I think the school age skaters are generally, not always, but generally being supported by their parents or family member um, financially. And so that means that they can focus on their studies and their skating. But, you know, once you're, once you're out of the house and you're on your own financially, you kind of have to make a choice. That's crazy. Uh, I, yeah, as a, uh, I guess, former athlete now, uh, still kind of, but not as competitive as that. It, it's, it is really hard. And that's kind of the stories you don't hear, especially the ones where the athletes don't go down to become like a hockey player, football player, baseball player, where, you know, it kind of quote unquote pays off for them because, you know, all that amount of hours and effort and money poured in, they get kind of reaped. But the, the sports that that doesn't happen, you know, there's no, no, synchronized skaters who are getting you know thousands of dollars to compete um you know there are very few figure skaters who can do that kind of professionally um and you know other sports as well even you know swimming and all that there's there are lots of different sports that it doesn't you know there's no plateau after you know college or you know going to compete for a national championship or a world championship so it's it's those stories uh, I really like to to hear and you know because it's it's just all about the the love for the sport then and that's kind of the idea sitting at home really bored during this quarantine I thought I was like yeah let's talk about sports because I moved to a province and you know don't really have many friends here I gotta you know talk about sports I think or else I'm gonna lose it so <laughs> it's uh it's it's nice to hear that you know people still make that sacrifice and you know want to do something that they truly love and they're willing to you know put on hold their career aspirations because the this is the time to do this and it makes sense and you clearly you know having different jobs and uh, wanting to to make it work so bad that's really inspiring to hear and I hope other uh, people the huge crowds that I have on this podcast, not yet, but <laughs> soon they listen to this podcast and they hear that it's, it's okay to take that, you know, step if you want to try and make this a go and, you know, who knows, it could turn out to be your career. But uh, if, if you're doing it for love, that's all that matters. You shouldn't be doing it for, for other reasons. Exactly. Yes. That's definitely something I think that makes Sinker really special, you know, because there you're not, exactly what you said you're not gonna carry on and then make your money back you're not going to carry on and get an olympic medal so the people who are in the sport are are really in it for the love of the sport i do have a question are there university or college teams in the states there are yes there are we have an entire collegiate division as well as an open collegiate division um there are i believe there are three ncaa teams uh, Miami University, Adrian College, and Trine University. Uh, but there are a number of universities that have synchronized skating teams all across the country. Awesome. That's how my, my wife went to our university. Um, and there, that year they were just starting up a team and she was like, yeah, I'll try it. So that's how she learned about it. And that's how I learned about it. <laughs> uh, also, and uh, they didn't have a specific um like tournament or comp tournament uh, competition uh where it's all university teams so they competed kind of in the 
in their division that they qualified in in the you know the region of Canada and then they were able to go to nationals for that division but it wasn't just strictly uh, university or college teams um, do you think that could happen soon a bigger NCAA um, presence I mean when I yes absolutely there the fact that there are three now is is great and incredible I hope that there are more um, I do I have seen the a lot of growth in the collegiate division as I've been growing up in the sport. And I hope that continues. And I think that it will because, you know, there are a lot of skaters. I, I think of even, you know, the skaters that I coach here in the DC area that uh, graduate and go off to college and they want to stay involved in the sport, but they don't want to go to college specifically for skating. You know, they're, they're not choosing the, the Miami universities or, trying to go somewhere in New England or Michigan to skate on one of the top teams. They really want to pick a school based on their academics and their career path, but they don't want to lose synchro. And so I think that's true for a lot of, a lot of teams, a lot of skaters and those skaters then start their own teams at college. So I do think it will continue to grow. Um, I do think it will continue to get more competitive. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the future of collegiate. So whose idea was it to put the documentary kind of on a, on a view on demand uh, format when you couldn't show it uh, at a festival? Well, you know, we got, we were approached for, uh, so we're talking about film festival day, which is this um, week long event that was organized by the film festival Alliance, which is an organization that represents small and mid-sized film festivals here in the U S and actually a few in Canada too. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were, they had already done one of these events and they found it had been successful. So they were looking for another film to feature. And because our festival screenings had stopped because of, you know, the virus and the pandemic. And, you know, this was in April when we started having this conversation, it was still too early. Like, you don't know, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? I don't think anybody understood the magnitude yet of this. And so there was some, you know, just like people talking like casual, like, oh, you shouldn't put your film online. But for me, it's like, you know, you make a movie, you want people to see it. Do I really care how you get to it? Not really. And, you know, there are rules about film festival screenings that if your film's available online, you get disqualified. And, you know, we obviously had to, like, weigh that. But what was the most important thing is to, for people to find out about synchronized skating. And, and we thought this was a good way to reach a national audience uh, in one week, right? Because, you know, we have these scattered screenings throughout the year, but here we can get like a big viewership. And we did get a really big viewership. 39 festivals participated in 23 states. And, can, you know, we did have folks in Canada watch the movie because I got a couple of notes from there. And we sold, I don't remember the exact number of tickets, but it was like maybe 1,600, 1,700 tickets. But you have to assume that there was at least two people watching that movie, you know, with those yeah. tickets. So in my mind, we had at least 3,000 people watch it that week, uh, which was huge. Billie Jean King endorsed it on a tweet, which was extra huge. Like, you know, so, so for us, it was a really good week. And now we're trying to take that and pivot that, you know, just try to get on a bigger distribution platform. We still have film festival screenings scheduled through the rest of the year. Um, but yes, it was really just a matter of saying yes to an opportunity that we weren't really sure what it would bring other than it stayed true to our mission, which was to increase awareness about the sport. Mm -hmm. well, I can definitely say we were some of those people in Canada watching my, uh, my wife. I think a few people on her 
team, well, her, I guess, old team now since we moved, but they were going to go down to one of the festivals and watch it uh, was their plan. And then obviously everything happened. Um, but as soon as it was available online, uh, you know, my wife was like, okay, I'm buying this and we're watching it. I'm like, okay, like, you know, I'll watch it. Like, you don't have to convince me. And, but she really likes it because we also have a roommate who, you know, before Vicky had never heard of the sport. So uh, she was like, okay, we're going to watch it and I'm going to teach you. So sat down and she was kind of explaining what was happening. She's like, oh, she did that. Oh, she didn't do that. Right. Oh, oh, see, yeah, that really hurt. And so <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's obviously going to be a great tool to introduce the sport and get it out there. So uh, I guess on behalf of her, she's still sleeping because it's just after seven o'clock here. Uh, you know, she, uh, really thanks you for making that uh making the documentary and kind of giving a, a an extra voice uh here in north america to a, a sport that's continuing to grow and she's really passionate about and wants to uh, continue to grow thank you i'm happy to hear it thanks for supporting the movie we really really appreciate it um, and, you know, I think of it as amplifying a voice that already exists, right? That's what the movie can really do. And I think anybody can use it as a tool. And that's one of the plans we have for it in the future, which is try to do more community screenings, more screenings based around local figure skating clubs. And, Nicole, if you want to expound on, expound on this, you can. But it, it's definitely a tool to reach, to reach more people. Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier that we did a, a live Q&A with a coach in the Mississippi, Alabama area. Um, so I think that's kind of a good example where she was able to get some of her skaters the chat and hopefully they'll be able to, I mean, maybe maybe post-COVID, but maybe they'll be able to get their rink to show the show the movie so that she can recruit those last few skaters she needs to be able to feel the team. Um, so we hope that that will work for her and, and that some similar situations around the country or even around the world um, can use this as a tool to help recruit skaters and, and educate people about what skating is, synchronized skating specifically, of course. <laughs> I think too, you, and you talked about the three different teams, is, and it can be a, used as a tool not just for, for kids or competitive skaters, but even the uh, in the uh, I guess mature category there they call it they just call it adult here and then there's different levels of adult but you know to get the people who used to figure skate years ago stay active you know join a team get that team atmosphere get to travel a little bit you know and just have that camaraderie that comes with a team sport I think it was really important and you really showed it uh, well that it's not just a young person's sport uh, even though, you know, you can go really, really fast when you're on a really competitive team. Um, it's not about the speed and it's not about uh, how many lifts or spins you do. It's it's more than that. And I think you did that uh, really well in the documentary. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate hearing that. And yeah, absolutely. You know, like so many things in life, you think, you know, the way you passion you had as a young person, you kind of have to age out of it. And, you know, you never have to age out of anything you love. But in Synchro, it is particularly true that you could really stay involved, which, which I think is also what, what I find unique about it. So now the big question is, have you joined a skating team yet, Angela? Not yet, Justin, because number one, when you're an independent filmmaker, not only are you broke, you can't afford to get hurt, right? Because I'm like, this movie has to get made if it's the last thing I do. 
So this year is when I would have started skating, but you know, it's kind of hard to do now. So, but I, you know, I definitely got to do, I don't know if I'll join a team, but I'm definitely going to learn how to skate. I can like shuffle on the ice. That's about it. Um, but I'm ready to like take my game up and maybe one day you'll see me out there. You know, Nicole can be on the team with me, maybe. Can't wait. <laughs> so what is next for both of you? I imagine you have another um, documentary on the go or film on the go, uh, Angela. But um, Nicole, what is the next step for you? Well, Angela mentioned um, community screenings. So we're kind of shifting gears a little bit towards, you know, how else can we get the documentary out there? So we're working on things like screening guides and, and connecting with skating clubs and other organizations that would be interested in the film. Um, so that's what's next specifically for the film. For me personally, um, I also work at a political consulting firm. So right now we're gearing up for a lot of big primary elections. Totally not a big course, year at all for you. Uh, so, you're yeah. right. And <laughs> of course, the presidential election coming up in November. So I'm definitely, definitely keeping busy with all that. Yeah, well, you know, yes, I'd like to be filming another movie right now, just if it's kind of hard to film anything. So a lot of pre-production, a lot of planning, working on a fiction script. But like Nicole said, like Life in Synchro, it's still like very much a project where we're behind because making the movie was one thing. And now there's this whole other thing of getting it out to the world. And so we are, uh, it's, you know, it's community screens. I'm trying to get it on public television. We're trying to get it in institutions. Um, and I still think that, like, because we hit so many different age groups, there's so many different groups that we can be focusing on. And one that I'd like to do, and if ARP, if anybody's listening, this is a great film because two of our main characters are retired persons. And you just don't see people of this age, usually women, presented in documentaries in this kind of light. It's not a sad boohoo story. It's an uplifting, you know, story about, like, life and living it to your fullest. So, and especially now in the climate that we're in, I think, we need more inspiring and happy stories. So, so we got a lot of work to do. I will put that in the show notes to, you know, hashtag AARP and all that stuff. So, so that they get a notification and get <laughs> the ball you. rolling. Uh, but I, I agree using this as a tool, um, even, you know, in the future, having teams film it for interested parties or uh, if there's an open house at a rink or, uh, you know, a team's trying to gain team members or uh, supporters that this is a good way to, you know, have them take a look, even if they, you know, get a code at home and they can show their, you know, kids who are, might be interested or on the fence. Uh, I think it's a, a great way and a great tool that can be used for years down the road uh, for the sport. Yes. Thank you. We hope, we hope it gets used. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, very much for uh, both of you coming on the podcast. Um, let uh, if you want to let the people know where they can uh, find you online for uh, anything. Well, you can visit our website, lifeinsynchro.com. We are keeping that up to date with any available online screenings that are coming up. Um, so that's kind of where you can get the most up to date information. We're also on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Life and Synchro. Excellent. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, I hope uh, many more people uh, see the movie. Thank you. Yeah. You too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nicole and Angela, for taking the time out of your schedule to come on the podcast. For those of you that want to follow up 
uh, and find out more information about synchronized skating or the film itself. Find out how you can watch it. They're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Life in Synchro. Uh, you can look up videos on YouTube of the sport and you can be the hopeful change to get it into the Olympics in the next few games and if you are interested in learning more or joining if you're really interested in joining be part of a really awesome community search your local skating club to see if they have a synchronized skating team hopefully you enjoy the sport we're now going to go to a segment put it on the board uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast this is a uh, kind of list making a list of things because that's the total end thing to do these days is make a list these are not in any particular order the theme this week is draft moments with the draft lottery happening very very soon we're going to do put it on the board of draft moments so first one is bobby clark who's gm of the flyers got up on the board and announced from the Quebec Major Junior League from the Gatineau Olympique and forgot the name of poor Claude Giroux. Just kind of blanked, looked over at his team like, who are we taking again? And then light bulb, oh yeah. And this all played out on live TV. I think uh, a lot of people, if you're watching it or have seen the clip, it instantly, you can play it in your mind. It's a fun little clip that everyone laughs at today, so that's good. The next was how Vancouver went to selecting back-to-back picks to get the Sedin twins. Now, this is a story I had not known, just never really researched it, so I did for the podcast. And Brian Burke was the GM of the Canucks at the time, uh, trading picks and players and making gentleman agreements. The Canucks had the third pick, then they traded to get the fourth pick. But then they were kind of afraid that the other two teams ahead of them might pick a twin. They traded that pick, the fourth overall, and other picks, to get the first overall pick, which is insane to think that a fourth overall pick and another first round pick next year and a couple others will get you the first overall pick. I don't think that's the price today. Then they kind of swap with Atlanta who had the second overall pick and made an agreement that they would not pick a twin so that Vancouver would now select second and third overall. I don't think we're ever gonna see this ever again it's it's almost like a draft day scenario like the movie really took a lot of guts to try and pull this off i don't think we'll ever see it again but it's pretty pretty cool that it happened way back in 1974 the sabers were on the board for their 11th round pick so you heard right 11th round pick the gm of the sabers was really really bored and to mess with the other teams stir the pot a little bit he picked a Japanese player, Taro Tushimoto, was selected as the 183rd overall pick in the 11th round by the Sabres. Now, of course, there is no such player, and he even played for a fake team in Japan. This has been grown into folk status as the years have gone on. People have even gotten his jersey. So if you go to a game, you might find one or two jerseys. He just got bored. It's kind of turned into a joke now. It has been revoked. They kept this up until training camp when the player never showed up and he had to come clean. The lockout draft, the recent lockout draft where the winner would get Sidney Crosby. So after the lockout year, there was no standings. It seemed that everyone kind of had a shot potentially to get Sidney Crosby. As the teams got revealed, everyone got more and more anxious and you kind of thought, oh wow, I potentially could do it. And then Pittsburgh got the number one overall pick, got a generational talent and changed, maybe even saved the team. And for the final pick, it would be an easy selection to say the Lindros saga. 
So I'm not going to. For my final, put it on the board, it's the 2001 draft where Alexi Ashen was traded to the Islanders for Zdeno Chara and the second overall pick. Now, I think we all know who won that trade, but Chara went on to play many years, great hockey, and then unfortunately got traded to Boston and won a Stanley Cup. But we also had Jason Spezza on the team and set it up for that decade of many playoff disappointments, pizza goals, and a Stanley Cup Finals appearance before we traded him as well after running him out for being a captain and blaming him for everything. But we want this to be positive, especially this week with the draft lottery. So it's a very happy day in history. And that's going to do it for our Put It On The Board segment. And that's going to do it for the Sports Unite podcast. We are at episode 10. We are getting in there. We are heading into July. Next week is already July halfway through the year hopefully you are staying safe and you're enjoying the summer it's not too hot where you are sports are coming back we have the national women's soccer league starting their tournament this weekend we have nhl gearing up we have baseball coming back we have the nba we have mls starting in just a a few weeks with their tournament sports are coming back thank you very much for listening Hopefully you have a great day and remember to stay safe, enjoy the weather, get some fresh air, enjoy some sports this weekend, and sport on.